to Gracious Words. Gracious Words is taken from the weekly women's Bible study taught by Cheryl Broderson at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, California. We behold your glory, God, in the face of Christ. It shows us who you are, revealing who you are. Jesus was a man of integrity. As he was tried and beaten, he kept silent. He didn't seek his release, nor did he curse his accusers and attackers. He never compromised. His love took him to the cross for us. Part two of Cheryl's message titled, What Will You Do With Jesus? I know my sin. I know the thoughts that I've had. I've had murderous thoughts. I have murderous thoughts. I've wanted to kill people I didn't even know just because they pulled in front of me on the freeway. I know I keep going back to the freeway, but that's, that's where if ever I could lose my salvation, it would happen. <laughs> I've had discriminating thoughts. I have had thoughts that I, you know, I, I've had thoughts like, like, Lord, don't save them. I've prayed that prayer. Don't save them. Save only me. Oh, I'm a naughty person in my heart. I desperately need Jesus. There are times that God has let me see the depravity of my heart, where I would go without him. And I want to say it is so ugly. It is so terrifying that I have even said to the Lord, don't ever leave me alone with Cheryl's flesh. Don't leave me there. Now I say that about myself, but you know what the Bible says? There is not one righteous. No, not one. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory. Jeremiah said, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Because we're sometimes in denial of our own heart and in denial that we can think the things we do or can act the way that sometimes, I mean, have you ever had a reaction? You're like going, oh, I can't believe I did that. Well, I, I wonder what brought that on. It must have been you that brought that out, you know, that made me do it. We always want to say, you made me do it rather than you brought this out in me. Like you brought that ugly thing to the surface that I've been trying to cover all my life. You know, the ugly beast that dwells in our heart, that wants dominance of our heart, that is called our flesh. It's not the devil, it's our flesh. And we've all thought, we've all done. We're all guilty, but not Jesus. Nothing in him was worthy of death, nothing. Death had no hold on him, no accusation that would stand against Jesus. But now notice the integrity of Jesus. As he's tried, as he's prosecuted, as he's led from place to place, bound, he does not raise his voice. Now see, that's something that we, you made me raise my voice. I really don't like to raise my voice. And I don't ordinarily yell. 
except in the car on the freeway all by myself. I don't ordinarily yell, but you made me yell. Jesus had every cause to scream, to yell, to shout. He knew the heart of every man. Remember in John chapter eight, when they brought the woman accused of adultery and they said, we have a law and by our law, she should be stoned. And Jesus knelt on the ground and began to write. And we're told that everyone who saw what he was writing was pricked by their own conscience. And they began to leave one by one. What did he write? I believe he wrote the accusation, the cause against every man. The reason that no man could pick up a stone and throw it at that woman. He who was without sin, let him cast the first stone. And nobody could cast a stone. Nobody. And so their conscience was pricked and they all left. Jesus could have said, yes, and you did this and you did that and you did that. Remember the woman at the well in John chapter four? She's acting all cute, like, hey. (laughs) <laughs> Where are you going to get that water? This well is deep and you have nothing to draw with. You need me. And Jesus said, you know, if you knew who I was and the gift that I offer you, you would ask of me and I would give you living water. She says, all right, give me that water. And he said, go call your husband. And she looks at him. I don't have a husband. And Jesus, says, yep, you're right. You've had four and the one you're living with, you're not married to. Jesus knew. Jesus knew. He knew all of the conditions that were keeping her from salvation. He knew all her sin, just like he knows all of our sin. He reads our heart. He knew the sins of every man who was accusing him. And yet he did not raise his voice. He did not seek his own release. He didn't say, what? Barabbas? You're letting Barabbas go? Do you know what that man has done? You just know of one murder. I know of his thoughts of murder. I know his plots and his plans. I know how he's lived his life and the violence in him. He doesn't seek his own release. He does not curse his attackers. Imagine the curses Jesus could have brought down on his attackers and on those who crucified him. He did not capitulate to Pilate, or to Herod. He didn't capitulate. He didn't say, all right, what do you want me to do so you'll release me? He never compromised. He didn't even speak to Herod. He endured the brutality, the rejection, the vehement accusation, the mocking, the flogging, the public humiliation, the cross, He laid his life down. He even allowed, he allowed, all of this is by his allowance. He could have stopped it at any time. He is the son of God. He is the host of heaven that could have called down legions of angels, but he allowed it. Even as we studied last week, as he said to Peter, permit it to be so. Peter, allow this. So Jesus allowed this. He allowed the nails to be pounded into his hands and feet. And all this time he is serene. He is controlled. He is compassionate. Even as his accusers are chaotic, raging, frenzied. 
He refuses the sponge laced with vinegar that's offered to him. Verse 36, he would not diminish the pain and physical agony he felt with any type of sedative. He would not allow himself to be numbed from the pain. He wanted to feel it all for our sakes. So no one could say, I felt more pain than you'll ever experience, Jesus. No one can ever say that. Jesus alone has felt the depths of pain. In Hebrews 2.10, the author of Hebrews writes, For it was fitting, right, for him for whom are all things and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to make the author of salvation perfect through suffering. It was right to allow Jesus to suffer. That when we pray, he understands. Jesus doesn't say, well, you think that's bad? This is what I went through. He doesn't, he doesn't dismiss our pain. Instead, he says, I know and I weep with you. I feel what you feel. I know, I understand. And because I understand, I empathize and I sympathize and I'm with you and I will bring you through. That's what Jesus does. There is a fellowship of suffering, not a dismissal of our suffering, but a fellowship with us. Jesus joins us in our pain and he attaches himself to us and he weeps with us and he understands and he empathizes and he sympathizes. Oh, what integrity. He endures it all. He feels it all. No numbing at all. No aspirin no ibuprofen, no marijuana, no drunkenness. He refuses any numbing to the pain of Calvary. But then from the cross, behold his intercession, even before the cross as he testifies to Pilate of his mission. And then on the way to Calvary, as he stops to minister and warn the women who are weeping. Luke 23, 28 through 31, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. Here is Jesus interceding, saying, pray for yourselves, because that's who I'm praying for. For indeed, the days are coming in which they will say, blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts which never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things in the green wood, what will be done in the dry? What a warning. What a warning. Jesus is telling these women not to weep for him. He is accomplishing salvation for them. But weep for those who are crucifying the innocent. Weep for the fate of the guilty because it will be much worse than what you see happening to the innocent. Looking down from the cross, 
seeing the callous men gambling at his feet, seeing the seething religious elite gloating over his death, seeing his beloved followers standing afar off, those coming from Galilee beating their breasts, hearing the devilish taunts, if you are the son of God, the same voice that spoke to him in the wilderness, if you are the son of God, command that the stone be made bread. If you are the son of God, throw yourself off the pinnacle of the temple. Make people believe in you. That same voice, if you are the son of God, then save yourself. Come down from that cross and we'll believe in you. If you're the son of God, if you're the son of God, prove yourself, prove yourself. But even then, he intercedes and he labors to intercede because speaking from the cross was absolutely excruciating. He had to push his weight against the piercing pain of the nail that held his feet. He had to gasp to bring air into his collapsing lungs. And in order to push himself up from that nail, that peg that held his feet, he had to rub his already lacerated back against the rough wood of the cross. And yet, he labors to pray. You know, we talk about laboring in prayer. Nobody has labored in prayer like Jesus. Gasping for breath. Hoisting his weight. Upon that piercing pain, he prays, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Father, cancel their debt against you. Cancel this debt against me. Even as Jesus observes the ugliness, the anger, the depravity of men against himself, he intercedes for man's forgiveness from God. You simply cannot dismiss someone like Jesus. Observe the inscription above his head, verse 38. It is written for the world to know, for the world to read. It is in the major languages of that time, Greek, Latin, Hebrew. And it reads, this is the king of the Jews. Not this was the king of the Jews. Not he called himself the king of the Jews. Not he claimed to be the king of the Jews, but this is, this is. Jesus was by all legal rights, the king of the Jews. Jesus was by all biological rights, the king of the Jews. Jesus was by all divine right, the king of the Jews. He is the anointed one of God. He is the very son of God. And he is the one that the prophet spoke of and foretold. That root of Jesse, that branch of God himself, that righteous branch. But even in death, he shows the nobility of a king. 
Even one of the thieves on the cross recognizes this nobility. He began by reviling. In Matthew 27, verse 44, it tells us that both the thieves blasphemed and reviled Jesus. But suddenly he stops because he sees the royalty of Jesus. He sees the nobility, the innocence, the integrity. And he rebukes the criminal on the other side of Jesus and says, do you not even fear God? Seeing you and I are under the same condemnation. And we indeed justly, we deserve what we are getting for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then turning to Jesus, he asks, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He recognizes that Jesus is a king and Jesus is going to a kingdom that is not of this world. He sees the nobility of Jesus and he asks to be remembered when Jesus is in that kingdom. When Jesus sits on that throne, he suddenly sees this man is a king and he's going to a kingdom and he's going to have authority and power there. So remember me when you're in that kingdom. And Jesus says to this thief, this day you will be with me in paradise. I want you to see the intentionality of Jesus. When we read, you know, Jesus came and he was on mission. He had an intention and every word that Jesus said was intentional. Sometimes as you read, you're like, oh, Jesus, if you didn't say that, you wouldn't have gotten in so much trouble. If you didn't heal on the Sabbath, if you had just kept your healing from Sunday to Friday, you wouldn't have gotten in trouble. But there was an intentionality in what Jesus did. He was bringing something out. There's an intentionality in every word Jesus used. Jesus was speaking and he said, it's not that which goes into a man that defiles him, but that which comes out because it's in the heart that murder and thievery and all this ugliness exist. And the disciples come to Jesus and they said, you know what? The Pharisees were really upset by what you said. In other words, the disciples are saying, you might want to calm it down around the Pharisees. And Jesus looked at his disciples and he says, leave them alone. In other words, I... I'm not trying to impress or pacify or get along. I've come to tell the truth and I've come to die for the truth. This is why I've come to expose the evil in the heart of every man and to show every man that he needs the salvation that I am bringing and that I will procure by the cross. Jesus was absolutely intentional in every word, in every act, in every healing. Often when you read the word of God, the gospels, you will say, why did Jesus do that? Or why did he do it this way? I want you to know that that why is very important. Do not leave it there. Do not just relegate it to like, well, I guess I don't know. No, stop there. 
Think about that why. Consider that why. Present that why to the Holy Spirit and say, Holy Spirit, tell me the why. Tell me the why. And I want to tell you, when you think about the why Jesus did it, heaven will open up to you and you will end up praising the Lord as you never have before. Personally, I love the why questions. I love it because it makes me have to go deeper into the word of God, deeper into Jesus Christ, deeper into the work of the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit brings us understanding. The Holy Spirit brings to our remembrance the things that Jesus has said. Don't be afraid of a why question because there's an answer. There's always an answer. And the answer is more glorious than you could ever expect. Sometimes we're afraid of why questions like, what if I don't like the answer? What if the answer diminishes from the glory of Jesus? It won't. It won't diminish. It will electrify the glory of Jesus to your mind. It will bring it home. As a child growing up, as I've told you before, I think I was born again at two and three and four and five and six. My mother made sure. I remember I was baptized for the first time at seven. And my mother said, do you understand? And I had to explain to her why I wanted to be baptized. And then she let me be baptized. I remember my first communion. I was dying to take communion. I wanted the grape juice and the cracker. But my mom was so suspicious that my motives were only to be like everybody else, to fit in, or maybe just to have, you know, an activity during church besides sitting quiet and still that I'd actually be able to drink and eat or even hunger just because I liked saltines and grape juice. And she made me explain to her why and what I thought of the cup and what I thought of the bread. And I remember saying to my mom, I just want Jesus, mom. I just want Jesus. I want as much of Jesus as I can possibly get. And I remember when the usher came that night that I got to have my very first communion. And no, I didn't wear a white dress in the Catholic church. It was at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. I remember the usher coming and my mom shaking her head, yes. Cheryl gets communion. I still remember to this day, and I think I was five, I remember when I first got to, to take that cracker and put it in my mouth and think, Jesus died for me. His body was broken for me. I was so ecstatic. I could barely sit still, and it was communion. I was supposed to sit still. And then I got to take the cup myself. My mom let me take the cup myself. And I was so careful because I didn't want to spill one bit of that juice. I wanted, I wanted to take it in and know that Jesus had forgiven all my sins, that his blood was working for this little girl. This little girl let the children come unto me and forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. And I remember, I remember that communion and I remember my baptism, all three of them. Nobody else gets baptized three times. But I remember being at the Jordan River 
And I think I told you this before. My dad said it was our first trip to Israel and nobody was lining up to be baptized because they had all been baptized before. And he says, Cheryl, how would you like to set an example and be baptized in the Jordan like Jesus? I said, all right. So I was the first person that Chuck Smith baptized in the Jordan River. You think that means anything to me? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I remember But I remember that baptism, again, going under the water of the Jordan, thinking Jesus went under this water, this same river, and coming up, identifying with Jesus Christ. I want to be all in. I want people to look at me and know I belong to Jesus. Jesus suffered more than any other man He endured physical pain and also the spiritual pain of taking on the sin of the world and being separated from the Father. Because of this, we can have fellowship with Jesus in our own pain and suffering. Jesus joins us in our pain and weeps with us. In our greatest times of need, Jesus understands, empathizes, and intercedes for us. We hope you have been blessed by today's Bible study. For more information about the Gracious Words radio program and the teaching ministry of Cheryl Broderson, please visit our website at graciouswords.com. Coming up next time on the Gracious Words program, we'll look at the final hours of Jesus' life as we continue our Jesus Magnified study in the Gospel of Luke with Cheryl Broderson. We do hope you make plans to join us. Again, for more information, please visit our website at graciouswords.com. This program is sponsored by Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, California.